Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, I'm so happy to welcome you to meet my friend and colleague on the AAMC Group on Faculty Affairs Research and Scholarship Committee, Clara Lapner. Clara is the Executive Director of Faculty Professional Development, Diversity and Inclusion in the Office of the Senior Vice President for Faculty Affairs and Career Development at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Hi, Clara. How are things in Manhattan today? Hi, Kim. Very happy to be on the show. Um, It's a gloomy day in Manhattan today. (laughs) As you know, and as you've been listening, this podcast is meant to develop community and inspire and encourage us as we all try to assemble and gather our tools to help develop and build faculty leaders in academic medicine. And, um, You are newer to this field. I know you are finishing up your PhD. And, um, you know, how did you get yourself into faculty affairs and faculty development? What's your background? I think it's been a very fortunate um, matter of luck. Um, I've actually been in this office for 11 years now. Um, I've been uh, doing... uh, I've been in charge of faculty development for about six years. Um, but I think, I think it's just been a very lucky circumstance that I found something that I, that brought together a lot of my passions and, um, interests in the past. So, um, I've always been very interested in, in health, in issues of social justice and culture and behavior. And, um, a lot of those areas have fallen into this work in faculty development and diversity and inclusion. Um, I, I can tell you that as I did my um, undergraduate studies, I was um, a medical anthropology major, and I really focused on um, issues of race and also the culture of medicine. Um, I then did my master's in public health here at Columbia, and um there, I really focus on survey research and burnout and, again, organizational culture and behavior. And I just fell into this profession that I think was um, really able to, that I think is growing and is developing and is always changing um, and really allows me to apply all of these concepts and perspectives that I had in school, developed in school, and um and gave me the ability to develop impactful interventions that are, you know, designed to support the career success of our faculty in academic medicine. Wow. So it's so, been a very happy circumstance for well, me. Well, I just have to um, apologize and call myself out. I just recognize another one of my implicit biases in that I look at upon you as someone who is young and fresh and new. And I think, oh, well, Clara, she's been doing this a minute. And I am so you know, ashamed to learn that you've been doing this for 11 years and six years in faculty affairs and development. So this is an important lesson for not only me, but for colleagues out there. Just because someone is young in chronological age does not mean they don't have a wealth of experience. I guess I was thinking when you came on the research and scholarship committee, I thought, oh, here's someone brand new to this space. But lo and behold, check myself. That's another bias I had. Just because you're young doesn't mean you have a wealth of experience. So apologies. (laughs) 
No, no problem at all. <laughs> so tell, describe your office to us. So you get your, you know, you get your, now I'm going to, I don't want to make another assumption here. Did you get your MPH and then land in the um, office uh, for the, the vice president there at Columbia? Or were you working in that office while you're getting your MPH? What was the, you know, the, the timeline here? It, it was the latter. I was working in the office. I've had several different roles. Um, I was working in the office and um, working on my MPH at the same time. All right. So why don't you describe yeah. the office um, for us? What is the, how does Columbia situate its Office of Faculty, Professional Development, Diversity, and Inclusion? So I think that we have a bit of a hybrid model from um, some of our colleagues at other institutions. Um, my my boss, the senior vice president, um, has uh, two roles. So she serves as the senior vice president for faculty affairs and career development for the medical center, which includes our four health science schools, the, um, the medical school, the mailman school of public health, the college of dental medicine, and um, the nursing school. And, um, and she's also the vice dean for academic affairs. So, um, I, I sort of have functioned in working in all of those different areas. We started out as just being focused on the medical school, um, and then our office expanded to include uh, programming and faculty affairs for all four health science schools. Um, so with that, my, my scope and my uh, charge has, has expanded as well. Um, so we have... We have some folks who are um, entirely focused on our medical school programming and um, and medical school needs, and we also have some folks who are focused on the larger medical center. Um, we have um, two full-time coordinators who focus on faculty development, um, and we also have a uh, conflict of interest in our office, which I think is a little bit of an unusual model. Um, we also have a promotion specialist who works very closely with faculty affairs. And, um, and then we have a number of faculty members who also help us with specific projects as assistant deans, associate deans, and advisory deans. Um, but they really focus on specific projects related to faculty development. Got it. So it's kind of a, a, a hybrid model. <laughs> Two things. Not one, number one, why don't you name your boss? And then secondly, yeah, tell us more about this conflict of interest position. I don't understand what is that role and function. Oh, sure. So, um, well, my, my boss is Dr. Ann Taylor. Um, she's the senior vice president for faculty affairs and career development and the vice dean for academic affairs um, and uh, our fearless leader who has I think been here for 12 years now and um, to answer your other question about conflict of interest I think very often this position is in a compliance office um, but we have it in academic affairs and they are the the um, the people responsible for uh, managing conflict of interest disclosures from the medical school, and um, they also provide guidance to the medical center as well. Okay, okay. So uh, that's like take office of integrity. I'm trying to think of the corollary at Hopkins, what that would be. I thought maybe for a second it was having to do with like mediations or like authorship, 
um, uh, conflicts in labs or, um, you know, divisions or something, but it, it, it is technically that legal aspect. Right, right. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so tell me, like, I, I obviously now you've been, you know, there a, a quite a bit of time. What, how have you seen the, the office and this program's policies and resources evolve for your faculty? And then, you know, tell us what, what among that, you know, the past years of watching this, what are you excited about and what's new or innovative and what's cool you want to share with us? Um, sure. So one thing that I really love about this work is that it's always, always evolving. It's always changing. Um, I, I think, you know, the needs of our faculty are constantly changing, um, becoming more specific, um, evolving as well as our society changes as well. So, um, I've seen, I've seen our office go through a major transition, um, since Dr. Ann Taylor started here, we, there was really nothing in place centrally. Um, some faculty development was taking place in individual departments, but, um, our office was really the first at the medical center to develop these kinds of initiatives. And I think what's really interesting is that we started out thinking about this work in terms of the pathways of our faculty, you know, uh, the traditional educator development, um, leadership development, uh, researcher development and clinician development. And this has now expanded so much, um, thinking about the, the nuanced needs of all of our faculty. So we've been spending the last couple of years really focusing on the needs of our women faculty, of our underrepresented minority faculty. Um, we've also been thinking um, about the the, re- the the nuanced needs of our researchers as well. Um, what are the needs of our basic scientists versus our clinical scientists? Um, and we've also really been evolving our programs and initiatives around mentoring and, again, thinking about those um specific and nuanced needs of the faculty, knowing that there's no program that is going to be, that's going to fit everybody's needs, no intervention that will fit everybody's needs. Um, So, yeah, I I think I've heard this term uh, floating around a lot, precision uh, professional development, (laughs) like precision medicine. And I think, I think that's really the, um, our future in this field. Um, and that's certainly something that we've been trying to do in our office as well. Yeah. Love it. Charlie Irvin and I, uh, from Vermont, we had a, that a breakout session at the PDC, the professional development conference last year in Chicago, just on that very concept of precision faculty development and how would we do that? And it's such an interesting idea that well, a lot of people say, well, we're already doing that. We do, you know, work one-on-one and mentor and coach and, and um, meet faculty where they are, and yet, how do you, uh, you know, standardize that that concept of one-on-one, and yet have these programs, you know, the seminars and workshops and cohort-based programs and promotion sessions, which you know, historically are geared toward you know big group efforts or webinars and and things and YouTube's online, and then if you know you, how do you really uniquely tailor these things. So I think it's an interesting idea. And um, 
we're, um, you know, been working since that presentation with Charlie Irvin and Martin Feeder from University of Chicago on a, on a piece of scholarship, but it's so hard to wrap our heads around philosophically mm-hmm. and theoretically, what is it? And then how would you actually do that? And then uh, standardize it? Would there be some kind of standardized tool? And the, the example I always give is my background is gerontology. And in my postdoc, I did a lot of work with the minimum data set, which is the standardized national tool that every uh, nursing home, um, long-term care facility uses upon intake of, of any patient or resident in a nursing home. And that's a big comprehensive tool. And I just couldn't help but think, is that what we need to do? Do we need to evolve to like this comprehensive intake, if you will, of a new faculty member and then ascertain uh, Mm -hmm. strengths and gaps and opportunities for development? And then upon any significant change, like in the nursing home, if there's some significant change in status or functional or cognitive capacity, that there's an alteration in that individual development plan, if you will. Anyway, I'm getting all excited, but... You keep tell tell us more about how how you're um, developing your mentoring programs and your outreach strategies. No, I, I think I think that's a, a really great point, and and that was also a, a great session at the GFA. Um, I think our approach has been to um, develop mentoring programs that are focused on certain subsets of faculty and and trying to think about their needs and also providing them with different types of um, formats as well. Um, I mean, we all know, we're all familiar with the um, traditional um, dyadic mentoring model. And I think um, what we're realizing is that that does not work in every scenario. And um, the way that we actually started working on this was we did a deep dive in the literature on mentorship um, we also tried to look specifically at um, differences in mentorship among women and uh, ma- and men faculty. And um, what the literature showed us was that um, high quality mentoring was essentially one of the biggest um, areas that there were discre- that there were differences between men and women. And um, spe- specifically in the types of functions that mentoring could offer. And um, what what we have been focusing on is this difference between psychosocial and technical functions of of mentoring. Um, And so the technical or instrumental career functions are around giving advice on professional goals and um, the development of academic scholarship and networking and um, career uh, strategies. And then the psychosocial or expressive function was more about having a mentor who will advocate for you, who will coach you, be your intellectual uh, challenger and supporter. And um, what we found was that women and men were getting different forms of these functions of mentorship. And um, and um, we so we started thinking about how do we provide, how do we fill these gaps. Um, and how do we enrich these mentoring functions for our faculty? So um, we were trying to look beyond, again, the dyadic mentoring relationship, which is often found in individual departments. And at the central level, we started offering peer and near-peer mentoring um, opportunities. We also looked at the structure of um, mentoring networks, which we really think 
are a great tool for um, for faculty to become empowered about their own mentoring relationships and also sponsorship opportunities and realizing that different groups, again, of, uh, of faculty may um, may have different needs around all of these different formats. So um, for our, so we offer a number of programs that are, that provide mentoring opportunities that are really relevant to all faculty. So we have a series about promotion that's led by um, the folks who lead our committees on appointments and promotions. Um, and they really, they've been fantastic about working with the departments and working with faculty members to think strategically about um, their advancement and their promotion packages. Um, we think that the um, the leadership and management programs that we offer also provide wonderful mentoring opportunities, not only for the from the the senior uh, faculty who lead the workshops, but also we try to make sure that there are peer mentoring opportunities within those programs. And then um, we've been developing a number of different formats of mentoring programs for women and diverse faculty. So we've had some um, peer mentoring groups for women faculty that focus on specific career paths. And we also recently launched a peer coaching uh, program for women faculty, um, which really focuses on gender um, specific issues in the workplace and working together um, to solve these issues. And it's been, I think it's been a great program. Could, could you tell us and then we, about that peer coaching program? What does it look like? Just kind of a high level structure of it? Sure. Sure. So um, it was actually uh, partly inspired by a program um, that was run at Stanford. And um, and it, it's evolved into its own thing now, I think. But um, it is, um, it's a group of faculty members who submit cases based on um, issues that they have faced in the workplace. Um, our office works to rewrite the cases, to make them very general, to make sure that they're anonymous. And then um, we use executive coaching techniques to help the group work through these, um, these cases and develop solutions together. And what we have found to be really fascinating is that we can use the same case I don't know, six or seven times. And um, each group will come up with a completely different interpretation and completely different solutions and strategies oh um, using this model. And it's and they're all extremely valuable and they all provide you with different perspectives um, on how to address some of these issues. What, and what we all also... All, Sorry, an example of a case that you're talking oh. about. So like, let us know what you're thinking about here. Sure. So um, one case that uh, always resonates with me is um, one was called, um, that was my idea. So there was a woman yeah. faculty member in a room at a meeting and she um, contributes to the conversation. And then the male faculty member next to her um, repeats it as his own idea and um and the whole group responds to him and applauds him for his idea. Yeah. And this is something that is not always just gender related, but it is something that is very common 
It can be based on, on age, on status, on gender. Um, that's been, that's been a very popular one. Um, there was also one case about, um, a, um, being at a professional conference and a senior mentor, um, talking about his junior faculty woman, um, mentee and referring to her as that girl and how, how as a young woman faculty member, do you advocate for yourself to your senior mentor to, you know, um, and again, that is not necessarily only gender related, but it's, it's about dealing with those kinds of uh, biases, whether or not you should address them immediately or afterwards. How do you think about these types of issues? Mm. Um, so, so there have been there have been a wealth of them. We've had some around uh, authorship issues, um, work life balance, um, and again, they're they're not they're all they're they're very broad in scope. I mean, they're not always purely gender related, but they are uh, issues that we find uh, women faculty may experience more often than our male faculty. So is this and we always try to... I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. I'm just so curious. Is this a one-off session where it's like a, a lunchtime, one, two hour, one and a half hour workshop, or is this part of a series of this, you know, this peer coaching program? When, how does this look, this, this um, you know, exercise? I think um, they have been one-off sessions. So I think in a perfect world, we would love to have a cohort that, that is um, followed throughout the year and is able to work together. But we've been trying to uh, maximize the the um, the impact of this and the access to this. Um, so they're, they've been individual workshops. And it's often, we, we have a group of faculty who attend almost every single one. And then we also have new faculty attending um, each workshop. And we try to rotate the cases so that those who are um, who have attended in the past are working on new issues as well. But it's really interesting with a new group of uh, faculty in the room every time. It's amazing to see the types of creative solutions and problem solving that they come up with. And they're all extremely valuable. And then we try to follow up um, and provide them with additional resources to continue thinking about these issues. We provide them with a reading list that's relevant to the cases, um, as well as additional resources, internal and external. That's really great. I I'm, yeah. would love to learn more about that and have to talk offline. So, yeah, peer coaching program, it sounds wonderful. I mean, coaching is becoming so big, and I know – a lot of people we just had on the GFA listserv, I think it was Dan Shapiro. Yeah, it was Dan Shapiro mm-hmm. from Penn State sent out an inquiry looking for a list of coaches. So this, this topic is important, and yet I've not heard um, through any of these podcasts, and I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure we nobody has talked about a peer coaching program. So kudos to you. I hope you write it up and so we can all oh. learn and <laughs> learn this model and um, and replicate it. Thank you. And I should also say, um, in relation to the, the email that went out through the GFA listers, this was actually created because we had um, a group of women faculty in our Department of Psychiatry, actually, who came to us saying that they really wanted to be able to provide executive coaching to women faculty. And unfortunately, that can be uh, very cost 
prohibitive yeah. <laughs> um, when you're talking about a large group of faculty. So we were trying to come up with a model where we could bring a lot of these concepts and um, techniques to scale. And so this is what we came up with. Wow. So I imagine you're, you're building a community there at Columbia of, of faculty members who have participated in this peer coaching program. And then I imagine they would, just like we do with the GFA, there's a listserv kind of a thing that they can contact each other of, hey, you know, calling all, um, you know, peer coaches, uh, here's a situation, can I, you know, pick your brain or buy a cup of coffee or, um, you know, check me here, am I going about this correctly? Is that is that the kind of community you have where people look more one-off, like on their own personally reaching out to support each other or are they kind of like no I'm good I got this and they're handling things on their own like how do you hear about outcomes or application of what they're learning that's a great question um we haven't done a listserv though I think that's a fantastic idea um we try to make sure that there are networking opportunities during the session and we encourage them to bring this back to their departments and to help each other use these to, to use these strategies in their departments when they are dealing with um, with uh, mentees and and even students who might be facing similar challenges. Um, but that is absolutely something that we should be thinking about. We we haven't done uh, much with that yet. Yeah, awesome, love it. What else did you want to share with us? Anything interesting, or you're excited about, or you're looking forward to? Um, well, I think, as I said, we're really excited about um, the the programs that we have developed around um, around mentoring, um, and we've had we've been trying to develop similar models that are also uh, nuanced for our diverse faculty as well. And we're now, um, as you know, Kim, we're now looking to do something similar for our research faculty. Um, you and I had talked a little bit about that offline. Um, so we're really excited about all of these initiatives and we're also really trying to make, um, to, to think about this, um, long-term, how do we sustain these programs? And, um, we're also looking at, um, structural, um, issues. I mean, in, in our organizational culture, trying to think about, um, developing policies and, um, procedures that really help um, foster these mentoring relationships and opportunities and support them as well. Um, so that's been the big focus of our office uh, recently, and it's been really exciting. How many faculty do you have at Columbia School of Medicine? We have about 2,000 full-time uh, faculty in the School of Med- in the Graduate College of Physicians and Surgeons. Yeah. Dr. Ann Taylor is very, very lucky to have you there um, for all this time and having you serve the faculty with such innovative and creative programming. So kudos to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, this is Clara Lapner, the Executive Director of Faculty Professional Development, Diversity and Inclusion over there at Columbia University. And um, I guess that's it for today. I want to thank Clara and thank all of you for tapping into the Faculty Factory podcast again. And uh, don't forget to spread the word and get a hold of me if you'd like to also be on the podcast. Thanks, Clara. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement 
in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.